0: You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to continue to praise your name and we trust that what occurs here the rest of the time we are together will just be a continuation of honor and glory to you. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us and one of the ways that you have chosen to speak to us most clearly, really, is through your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illumines the word and teaches us the truth. And now we ask that he would be our guide and our teacher, that he would convert the words that you give me to share into action and into belief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis, the first chapter. Genesis chapter 1. And today I'm reading verse 1. Someone said to me before the service this morning, You know, I gave a devotional on Genesis 1.1, and you can get a lot of stuff out of that. And my response was, obviously, you can. you can get a lot of stuff out of here. And uh, I, I hope that uh, you have gotten something out of our study of Genesis 1:1. We are going to go further, I promise you, in the book of Genesis. We're going forward. The next time I speak, Lord willing, we'll forge our way further in the book of Genesis beyond verse 1. Genesis 1:1 in the New American Standard Bible reads as follows in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The British physicist Sir Isaac Newton had a miniature replica of the solar system made for himself and he placed it in his study. It was a beautifully done piece of work. At the center was a golden ball which represented the sun and then radiating from the sun were rods which had gears and cogs and belts which caused the globes at the end of each of those rods which represented the planets of the universe or rather the solar system as it was known at that time at least, they would revolve around the so-called sun. One day a friend of his who was an atheist came to visit him and when he walked into the room the first thing which caught his eye was this replica of the solar system and he gasped and he said, Mr. Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up from his study, he responded by saying, nobody. Nobody, his friend replied. He said, that's right, nobody. Those belts and cogs and wheels and gears just happened to come together and wonder of wonders, by chance, they began to revolve in their set orbits with perfect timing. Well, his friend got the message. Somebody made that replica of the solar system. And the implication was clear to this friend of Newton's. Somebody had made the solar system which that replica represented. Did you notice what he said in responding to his friend? Wonder of wonders, by chance, by chance, these objects began to rotate around the miniature sun. Voltaire, who was not a believer, said this about chance. He said, what we call chance can only be the unknown cause of a known effect. Now, when you think of chance, what do you think of? Probably you think about what the odds are of your winning a bet that the miners will win the rest of their games this football season, right? I could have, I, I didn't know what the outcome of the baseball game was last night, so I I'm glad I didn't try to use some kind of reference to that, not knowing who won the World Series. And you can keep that to yourself until after the message, by the way. But the classic classic understanding of what chance is, and listen carefully, it's very simple, but it's very telling. Chance, the classical and I think correct definition, is the absence of cause. The absence of cause. Chance... And God cannot coexist in the universe. Because if there is chance, remembering our definition of chance, the absence of cause, then there can't be some first cause behind all the effects which we see in the universe. There are those who would say that we have uncaused effects in our universe, but un- the terminology uncaused effect is false by definition. An effect requires a cause, correct? Correct? So that kind of terminology is a contradiction in terms of what some people would call an oxymoron. I'm just a moron, not an oxymoron. <laughs> if chance exists, then God's sovereignty is destroyed. Now, by the sovereignty of God, what the theologians mean is that God is in control of everything. And if God is not sovereign then he is not God. And if God is not God, then he is just not. There is no God in that situation. God and chance are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist, as I've mentioned. If God is, however, then chance isn't. And chance has no power to do anything because it is nothing. And nothing can't do something. Now, are you totally confused by now? It's true, isn't it? Something does not come from nothing. This denies the philosophical law of non contradiction, which says something cannot be A and non A at the same time in the same relationship. The idea goes one step further. Something can be A and B at the same time in a different relationship. And let me try to illustrate that for you. I can be a father and a son at the same time, I can be the father of my children, and I can be the son of my father. But I can't be my own son and father at the same time. It's just impossible. There is a principle which is age-old in science, and I'm not a scientist, but I'm told this is true. It is spoken in the Latin words, ex nihilo, nihil fit, which translated means, out of nothing, nothing comes. This is a principle of science, and by the way, The whole idea of the world being created by chance is not in the arena of science. The Bible tells us about origins. Science cannot tell us about origins. Why? Those of you who are scientists or those of you who have studied science know that the scientific method is based upon observation and experimentation and reproducibility. For instance, if I were to conduct an experiment here before you today and you observed it, I could do the same experiment next year at the same time and you would get the same results. That's reproducibility, is it not? But science cannot go back to the beginning of time because we don't know how to get back there. We can't, it's something that's not reproducible, correct? There's no way that creation can be reproduced. No one was there, humanly speaking, to give us a description of what creation was like so something cannot come from nothing Do you see how impossible it is for people to believe I mean they believe it I don't know how they believe it but they believe that the world the universe as we know it came from chance and remember what chance is what is it the absence of cause chance is nothing and something cannot come from nothing I hope you're getting something from this that I'm sharing with you this morning This is a preacher's nightmare, I must confess. (laughs) Probably in audiences too, I don't know. Either a person has to say, in the beginning nothing, or in the beginning God, to explain the universe. Unfortunately for us, what science cannot do, God has done in revealing to us supernaturally in the Bible how in the sense that God was behind it creation occurred we don't know all the details there's a lot of speculation about the specific details of creation and that's not for us to discover today and we may never exactly know all that goes on but the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the word which Moses chooses in Genesis 1 1 for created is a word which is only used with reference to God as the subject. Wherever this word bara in Hebrew occurs, God is always the one who is the subject of the word. He is the one doing the creating. There are other words, even in Genesis 1, related to the activity of God. For instance, in Genesis 1-7, it talks about God making the firmament. A different word, Asa, is used there. That word is sometimes used of the creative activity of man. But when this word bara is used, the strong implication is that the idea here is the idea of creating something out of nothing, ex nihilo, creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing. This word bara is used not only in Genesis 1.1, but also in Genesis 1.21, which is the turning point of God creating something that's conscious as far as something being alive. Until that point, he's talking about plant life, and then he talks about conscious life, and then in Genesis 1, he uses this word bara three times to describe the creation of man. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 3, he uses it again in relationship to creation. Now, here's a good question. Even people, and there are many scientific people, and, and there may be some validity to this, people who believe there was a time in the past when all the matter of the universe was condensed to about a three centimeter cube. Can you imagine that? It's possible, it's possible. There's some scientific data that would indicate that this could have been. But the question is, where did that come from? You gotta gotta find where that came from, right? Until 1929, the predominant theory of the universe as far as what was going on in the universe was the steady state theory, basically which said that the universe has been in the state it's in forever and it will remain in the state it's in forever. Carl Sagan, what is his saying that he introduces his series, Cosmos, on PBS? What does he say? The cosmos... Anybody remember? Help me. No, I I think I know what he he said. Basically, he says the cosmos is and always was and always will be. Basically he's saying that the created order, or the order, I don't know if he would even use the word created associated with it, the order is eternal, correct? And really the steady state theory basically communicates the same thing. But in 1929, an astronomer named Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe was expanding. And it was expanding in all directions simultaneously. And the conclusion which he reached, and it's a logical conclusion, is that there was a time when it might have been a three centimeter square cube. There could have been a time when that was taking place. You know this is the Big Bang Theory. Any of you who are familiar with theories about the way creation occurred from a scientific point of view? And basically the Big Bang Theory says that there was infinite density and heat and let me ask you a question. Let me, let me draw this out from you a little bit. I want you to think with me. Do the words infinite and density really fit together in themselves? Because if you have infinite density, you have no mass. So you have nothing, right? No mass. We've got a word for that here in this area, right? You've got no mass. Exactly. And then in an instant, there was this incredible explosion of heat and energy. And the result was that matter and radiation popped into existence. And then gravity drew matter to greater areas of density in the universe, which were galactic seeds, the seeds around which the galaxies developed. And it took like five billion years for those to develop. Now, we weren't there. We don't know if that happened. But it is somewhat plausible to think in these terms. But once more, we have to ask the question, who was the one who put that three-centimeter cube together to begin with. That still is something science cannot, will not, will never be able to answer. One of the alternatives to the biblical account of creation is the theory of evolution. And you might be surprised to discover that evolution, next to the biblical account and some other ancient accounts, is the oldest explanation for the universe as we know it. There were many ancient Greek philosophers who believed in evolution, among whom was Aristotle. He believed in it. Some of his predecessors were Thales and Epicurus and Lucretius, Anaximander and Anaximenes. More recent proponents of this in modern history were Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, and Immanuel Kant. And who is the name that we normally associate with evolution? Yes, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, between the years of 1831 and 1836, circled the globe, and through his observations, he developed the theory of evolution. He recorded in his book, The Origin of the, C- the Species. I think by means of natural selection is the subtitle of that work of Darwin. Let me just share with some, you something that Darwin wrote to a friend of his by the name of J.D. Hooker. He said this He said, I do not believe that the universe came into being by blind chance. What was he saying? He's saying, in effect, I believe in a creator, right? If you believe that, he really shot his own theory of evolution in the foot by saying that there were mysteries even for him. Now let me try, and I must admit, I'm, I'm just going to make a, the best stab at this that I'm capable of making to help you understand, if you don't already understand, or to help us put in perspective what the theory of evolution communicates. It says basically this, that all forms of life have developed from earlier, simpler forms and life itself sprang spontaneously through a complex organization of previously non-living chemical molecules. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? Do You get what that theory proposes? That life as we know it, organic life derived from inorganic material from chemical molecules. Is that hard to believe or what? It takes a lot of faith from my perspective to believe that. It takes a lot less faith to believe what the Bible teaches or just what our senses tell us when we look at creation. What other conclusion can we reach except there is a creator, right? Of course. Now, if I may, I would like to take a few minutes of the remaining time to talk about the postulates and the conclusions which Darwin reached. The first postulate was that there are variations within individuals of the same species. Just look around you today. Look around you. Is there another person just like you here? It's kind of scary to look around sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, there's nobody exactly alike. Now, we do share some commonality, do we? Not all of us do share some common ground. But there's nobody just alike. There is variation. He was obviously correct in this matter. The second postulate was the postulate of overproduction. In other words, in any given species, there are more born into that species than will survive to maturity. And that's true also, isn't it? And he reached a conclusion as a result of this. He called it the struggle for existence. To survive, individuals must compete with others in the same species. Let me stop here just a moment. This is an aside, but I think it would be appropriate for me to share it at this point. Do you realize that when Karl Marx wrote his book, Das Kapital, which was the Bible of communism and still is to this day, that he asked Charles Darwin to write the preface? Because he believed that Darwin's theory of evolution supported and encouraged communism. Do You also know that Adolf Hitler was influenced by evolutionary thinking. How else would he get to the point where he raised the Aryan race to such a level where he said everyone who is not of this race should be exterminated, we're going to breed a super-race. Where did he get that thought, that idea? It's evolutionary thinking. Do you see the insidiousness of this thinking and how it has infiltrated and influenced other areas besides science? Certainly you can see how this has impacted other areas in our lives even to today. A third postulate of Darwin's was survival of the fittest. In competitive environments, only those best fitted will survive. His fourth postulate was inheritance of favorable characteristics. In other words, if you are fit enough to survive, then you're going to pass down to your offspring and to succeeding generations good traits from you. Now the final conclusion, and I'm going to read this so I don't mess up and trying to communicate this. The final conclusion of his study was this. New species arise by the continued survival and reproduction of the individuals best suited to their particular environments. Now, what are we to say to Darwin uh, of his theory? Well, first of all, we can say there are varieties within a species. There are individuals that aren't alike. We've already alluded to that. I have that he was right. Some are tall, some are short, some are strong, some are weak, Some are blonde, some are brunette. There are varieties, are there not? But is this sufficient to account for the development of whole new species? And has such development really occurred? The only historical evidence that evolutionists have is the fossil record. And we do see in the fossil record development from the simple to the complex life forms, the apparently, and I use that word advisedly, the apparently older stratum, the older strata, I should say, of rocks, have simpler forms. And as you come up through the geological strata, you find that there are more complex forms of life. In, in the oldest strata, you find fossils of algae and protozoa and sponges, and you come up to another strata and you find fish and reptiles and amphibians, you come up to another, you find dinosaurs. Come up to another strata, you find animals as we know them, and then finally you find fossil remains of human beings, excuse me. And we also know that some species have become extinct, so this would lend some credibility perhaps to evolutionary thinking. But there is no evidence, now this is telling, there is no evidence of gradual development in the fossil record. It's what the paleontologist evolutionists call the missing link. There are just these big jumps from one species to another species. There is no evidence of a fish sprouting legs in the fossil record, for instance. There's just these big jump. You know, the truth is there are hundreds if not thousands of missing links. They cannot be proved. The evolutionist says that the fossil record is incomplete, and that is a masterful understatement, by the way. What are the problems with evolution? Well, well, allow me, we have people in our congregation who could do a much better job at this point than I because they have a physics background. But Allow me to try to attempt to share with you something about the science or the field of science known as thermodynamics. Thermodynamics is a word which comes from two words in the Greek language which would literally mean heat power. It's the science that studies the conversion of heat and other forms of energy into work. And it has become known that everything in the universe is energy in some form. And any time anything happens in the universe, it's energy conversion that's happening. It's energy conversion processing that's taking place. Now, there are two laws of thermodynamics. And really, these could be called the two laws of science, if you really got down to it, because everything else really hinges on these two laws. The first law of thermodynamics is the law of conservation. And basically, what this law says is that energy may change form but there is no new energy being created, nor is energy being destroyed in our universe. So the clear implication of this is that creation is over. It's not continuing. Now that's kind of hard for an evolutionist to deal with. The second law of thermodynamics says this, that there are physical systems in our universe, and these physical systems left to themselves tend to run down. For instance, a machine wears out, have you ever had something that was a piece of machinery that ran down? Wouldn't it be nice to have a car that never ran down? Be great, wouldn't it? But it runs down, right? And also, organisms, including human beings, age, are you aging? Yes. And die, right? Things run down. Now, what does evolution require? The theory of evolution requires? That there is this universal development and integration going on, ad infinitum, forever and ever and ever. How does that fit with these laws of thermodynamics? It doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't. I'm not a scientist or the son of a scientist, but I have enough sense to see that that just doesn't work. And I don't understand, I I have an explanation, how people who have great minds, much more intelligent than I would ever think about being, could come to the place where they opt for a theory like evolution instead of a creationist viewpoint. I don't see how in the world people can come to that place. Of course, I have a faith presupposition. I admit that readily. But even if I didn't, I don't understand how people could not believe in creation and would opt for evolution. The problems with evolution, I've already alluded to this, the origin of the matter from which things sprung to begin with. For something to evolve, there must be something there to begin with. Right? Sure. And here's another problem for evolution, it's the emergence of personality in man. Now think about this, what caused non-man to become man? Maybe another way of asking that question is, what distinguishes man from the rest of animal life? And I'm not, I don't think we're animals, by the way. I'm just looking at this from an evolutionist viewpoint. What distinguishes us from the rest of conscious life, we might say? What distinguishes us? What is it? What is it? We can reason, can we not? We can reason. You can take the lowest form of humanity on this earth and compared to the highest form of animal life and the lowest form of human life in terms of intelligence, is eons ahead of the highest form of animal life. Correct? It's so true. So, what caused non man to become man? Where did man's God consciousness come from? Where did his soul come from? Man can relate to God, there's no other animal. Uh, that can relate to God and pray to God like we can pray to God and have a relationship with God and become a child of God through Jesus Christ. So this, I think, is also a problem for the evolutionists. Now, why is evolution so popular? You probably could give an answer for that. Let me just give you an answer. It's because I believe it eliminates God and it exalts man. That's why. If there's no God, you can do just whatever you well please, right? You don't have anyone to answer to. You're autonomous. You're a law unto yourself. And you can sin. You can mistreat people. You can cheat. You can steal. You can lie. You can do whatever you want. And there's no one to whom you have to answer ultimately if there is no God. You can see, I can see at least, why this would appeal to man. Man is the God with a little g of creation. To challenge evolution is to blaspheme man. Now, in conclusion, I would like to ask you to turn with me in the book of Isaiah to the 43rd chapter. Isaiah 43. I would draw your attention once more to the word which is translated created. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. The heavens and the earth, it's the word bara. And remember that God is always the subject of that word. God created. Now, what is interesting to note is that this word is used over 50 times in the Old Testament. Over 50 times. And the majority of the times it is used, it refers not to... The creation of the physical order, but it refers to spiritual creation. In other words, what we would call in New Testament terms, recreation, the recreative work of God in the hearts of people who are estranged from God by their sin. Now, Isaiah 43, verse 1, says, But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, that is, created you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Now look at verse 19. You could read this whole chapter at your leisure. Verse 19 says, Behold, God is speaking, I will do something new. In other words, I will create something new. Barah is the word that's used there. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? And what God is talking about here, He's talking about spiritual creation. Now turn to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 17. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. And actually, this would be better translated, He is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. What is Paul saying here in 2 Corinthians 5.17? He's basically saying this. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no life. Internally, there is only death. And that death is the result of the sin that was committed way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. The result was that that sin and the result of that sin has been communicated from generation to generation and will continue to be communicated until the end of history. And he's saying that Christ coming into a person's life takes away the deadness and there is a new creation which occurs where God once dwelled in the innermost part of man in his spirit, God comes again and he recreates that person on the inside. Now, let me ask you a question. If the Bible is true when it says that everybody who is born is dead on arrival spiritually, that everybody is dead inside, what can everybody do to contribute to his or her salvation, to his or her recreation? Can anybody do anything on his or her own to make herself or himself right with God? Absolutely not. If you are here today, and you're depending on your own goodness, your own intelligence, or anything else to get you right with God, you're barking up the wrong tree. You have to ask God through Jesus Christ to perform a work of recreation in your heart and Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you. And what will happen is what Paul teaches here in verse 17. The old will pass away and the new will come. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we claim the promise that your word does not return into you void. You accomplish your purpose with your word, so we trust that you will have done that today, that you would take those who might be skeptics who have been here today and cause them to reevaluate their viewpoint and consider the reality of God, and more than that, that they would... Consider receiving Jesus Christ, who is the God man, into their life for their own salvation. Help us all, Lord, to be better spokespeople for the truth of your being sovereign. And Lord, the most important thing that 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 we would be able to do in that regard, I know, is just to let you be sovereign of our lives. So help us to make you Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.